I'm Dr. Nadine Gonzalez de Jesus, president at San Antonio College. Today, we'll be having a conversation about the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. This will be a two-part series. Today, we'll be speaking with Bill Avila, law partner at Brazewell Law Firm, and with Judge Ed Prado, also a partner at the Brazewell Law Firm and a former U.S. ambassador to the U.S. Embassy in Argentina. Welcome back to Front and Center. Joined here this morning with Dr. Nadine Gonzalez de Jesus, San Antonio College President. Good morning. Good morning, Hamaster. How are you today? Having a wonderful summer. Enjoying the four-day work week. That's wonderful. Well, I believe our four-day work week is going to finish when? I believe at the end of July. At the end of July. So enjoy it while it lasts. It's always strange because you kind of get used to it, and by the time you get used to it, it's already gone. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I am so super excited this morning. Today with us, we have Mr. Bill Avila. Bill Avila, he is the partner for the San Antonio office of Brazewell. Hello, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Good morning. Wonderful. Bill, could you tell us a little bit about you? I'm uh, an attorney here in town. I've been practicing 41 years. I was born and raised in San Antonio. I uh, grew up on the South Side, went to Brackenridge High School, went to Notre Dame, got a bachelor's and a master's in economics. And then went to George Washington University Law School in D.C. And then after law school, came home to practice law. And part of my practice was I spent six years in the city attorney's office uh, for San Antonio. And my practice has basically over the years been advising governmental entities on the laws that they are subject to and what they can and cannot do. Thank you so much. Judge Ed Prado is also here with us, who also served as the U.S. ambassador to Argentina. Hello, Judge Prado. Hello, how are you, doctor? I am doing great, sir. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience? Sure, yes. I'm born and raised here in San Antonio, went to Edgewood High School. After Edgewood, I came to SAC and graduated from this wonderful campus. Uh, Went to University of Texas, got my bachelor's and my law degree. Served as a federal public defender here in town, U.S. attorney. I was a federal district judge for 19 years and then on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for uh, 15 years and uh, finished my career sort of uh, as ambassador to Argentina. And here recently, the last year, I've joined Bill in the Bracewell firm and I'm of counsel in the Bracewell law firm here in town. Amazing, amazing. Also, it's important to know that you and I, we worked at the U.S. Embassy in Argentina and that's where I first met you, right? Yes, that's true. And after we left, everything went downhill in Argentina. (laughs) I think it did. I think it did. They need us there, Judge Prado. They need us there. Anyways, I wanted to touch base uh, today on affirmative action. For those of us who may not know about how a case actually gets to the Supreme Court, could one of you go into it, into the process? Sure. I'll I'll start off. Uh, As a judge, I'm quite familiar with how the process works. Uh, Has to come most for the most part from federal courts. Uh, There are 94 districts around the country. We're in the Western District of Texas, which covers most of uh, West Texas from San Antonio to El Paso up to Austin and Waco down to Del Rio. Uh, And there are four districts in Texas. From there, it goes to New Orleans, which covers all federal cases in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And then from there, it would go to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court takes less than 100 cases every year. It's surprising because there are thousands of cases around the country. uh, And unless 
four of the judges agree to take the case. The case is not accepted by the Supreme Court. So they have total discretion as to what they're going to accept. Uh, sometimes it might be a, directly from the state court, but for the most part, it comes from the federal uh, courts. For a case to get to the Supreme Court it is very difficult, and it takes several years before the court actually uh, hears the case and makes a decision. Interesting. So it takes many, many years before it actually gets to the court. Now, let me ask you this. What were some of the factors that uh, they considered for this case, Bill? The basic challenge was the use in any way of race as one of the factors in considering admission to the universities. This case included Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. But there were several of these cases filed all over the country challenging the same concept. The use of race has a long history in this country. It's been undertaken and approved by prior courts in the form of, for a couple of different reasons, in remedial actions to overcome past discriminations against different peoples. But it has been expanded to find a governmental interest in the benefits of the, having a diverse student body. And this case challenged both of those. It was filed by a nonprofit corporation, and it eventually worked its way through the court system and wound up at the Supreme Court. Interesting. So for those of you who may not be aware, right, the Supreme Court, and they decided that the use of race for admissions um, is no longer going to be approved um, or allowed uh, in order for you to be a student and apply to attend, uh, let's say, a highly selective college, the use of your race or ethnicity will no longer be a factor to be considered. So working in the higher education sector for over 25 years, um, I also understand that the role the two-year college plays to train and equip is very important. And therefore, um, we are playing right now a very important role in our district to ensure that anyone that comes through our doors and wants to be trained, they have the opportunity of doing so. And race and ethnicity is not a factor. It's not a factor for us. What is your view on that, Bill? The court doesn't completely eliminate the use of race. They limited it to a smaller use than it had been attempted over the years. The history of it starts with just the attempts to, in higher ed area, the attempts to increase basically enrollment by m minorities into the higher ed. The whole notion of affirmative action was really, it relates to going out to make the effort to find the student population, to advise them of the opportunities in attending those schools, and then taking into consideration their backgrounds, how that affected their ability to attend the schools. And so it's not just whether they're smart enough, but do they have the resources to go and pay their way and, and get in. The uh, attempts over the years, it started out with institutions creating, okay, we need this percentage of this population. And established quotas to measure their success in achieving that objective. That got challenged, and that got thrown out. 
by the Supreme Court that you cannot have a quota. So that's when they came in with the notion of establishing goals. Okay, we're going to go out and look for the various student populations around the country, and we'll set up a goal and see how close to those goals we can get. And so the diversity programs were set up with that thought in mind to have established goals and to evaluate your success in the enrolling minority populations. Within that, by its nature, you have to identify the backgrounds, racial, ethnic, religious backgrounds of of your applicant pool. And then the courts came out and said, you know what, actually the diversity, the, the governmental objective of having a diverse student body helps the educational environment and the educational outcomes of the country as a whole and the individual students. This court came in and said, you know, there's no way to measure that. And so I don't think that that's, because it's not quantifiable, it's kind of like too vague. So they felt the policy was too vague and it needed to be somehow narrowly, more narrowly defined. And all of this, the legal theories behind all of that is it's when you're in, in the realm of constitutional law, when there's a, an attempt by a government to limit the exercise of a constitutional right, the freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, the court will give it a harder standard of review for the government to establish their legal ability to do that. The other area is when you have a policy that affects different people differently. So then you look at the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, and to the extent it affects different people differently, then you also have that stricter standard to show what the courts have referred to as a compelling state interest. And there's a long line of cases before this one that have established and recognized a diverse student body as a compelling state interest that the universities can attempt to achieve. So to me, it made a lot of sense to establish the policy in the first place. But to some extent, I mean, I recognize I've been a beneficiary of the policy. And so it's maybe someone, other people that haven't lived my life would see it differently. I see. I want to touch base on that. But first, I'd like to find out more about what the judge has to say in regards to where we were with affirmative action and where we're going with it now. Well, I think that there were a line of, of cases that allowed race to be taken into account in determining admission to universities. Back to the Bakke case in, I think, seven, 1978. Then you had the Grutter case in 2003. In the Grutter case, uh, the Supreme Court was concerned about using race because they looked at the 14th Amendment, which, interestingly, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution was passed after the Civil War to protect African Americans from discrimination. And now it is being used as an affirmative thing to help those minorities, blacks and Latinos, to get into the higher standard, I guess you would say, uh, prestigious schools. Uh, As a practical matter, this ruling applies to about only 200 colleges and universities in the country. We have thousands of, of colleges and universities, and most of them do not use race. I think there are about 13 Uh, states that, including California, that do not use race in determining admission to to the schools. But the higher prestigious schools do use it in an effort to have a diverse uh, student body. The majority of schools are probably not going to be affected by this ruling. Uh, That being said, in the, the Grutter decision, which allowed it, the court, as Bill has said, said 
that this is a legal term, but it's strict scrutiny, which means we have to review this very carefully because the 14th Amendment says that everyone needs to be treated equally. And when you use race, are you in effect putting other groups at a disadvantage? And in this case, I think uh, the court referred to uh, Asian Americans and whites were not getting in at the expense of, of blacks and Latinos. Uh, so the court was concerned that we're going to let it go on because we think there's good, compelling reason uh, to have diversity at this point. But we have to review this and have goals. And uh, Justice O'Connor, in her opinion, said maybe, you know, in about 25 years, we should review and see if we reach those goals. And this shouldn't be a permanent policy. So even in the Grutter decision that allowed for uh, uh, race to be uh, a, a factor, the court was a little concerned about what were the goals and, and how long will it take to reach those goals. But it was allowing it. And now we have this present Supreme Court, which it has changed from the Grutter Court. In the Grutter decision, I think we now have about two or three, well, more than that, new judges who are more conservative, I guess you could say, today than the court was in 2003 when the Grutter decision was, was decided. So this more conservative court has even more concerns or had more concerns and said, this doesn't sound right because what is your goal and, and how are you going to reach that goal and what is your timetable? And are you stereotyping uh, all uh, people uh, of minority races? For example, a Cuban-American in Miami is different from a Puerto Rican in New York, from a Central American in California, from a Mexicano down in South Texas. Uh, so you can't put all Latinos in the same group. Some are more affluent, might have uh, parents that are lawyers or college presidents, and others come from a poorer background. So you can't just put them all together in one group and say all Latinos are going to get a, a break because they're just because they're Latino. So the court had some concerns, and it seems like now it's reversed the Grutter decision. It doesn't say so directly, but in effect, I, I think it has overturned its own decision of Grutter, which allowed for race uh, in admissions. Ha, huh, interesting. Thank you so much. So with that, uh, Bill, I, I would like to find out um, your from your um, point of view, how do you um, benefit from affirmative action? I know you, you mentioned that earlier, and I would like for you to, to expand upon that if possible. The most obvious one is the universities throughout the country started coming to San Antonio to find students to increase their applicant pool. So first they were looking for us. And then we went through the process of applying and everything. Once you get admitted, and, and then you know, they look at your whole academic record and all of that, and I don't know whether with or without affirmative action, I would have gotten in any of them. I mean, maybe I would have. So I got in, and the best example of how affirmative action could work is I was in law school. My second year, I put a co-ed softball team together, tournament. And I went to the student bar office to work on the bracketing for the tournament. And I saw a sign on a bulletin board that said, we're looking for Hispanic interns in the White House. That has a phone number, so I just applied, and I wound up with an internship in the general counsel's office at OMB in the White House. And I got to do that, and I wouldn't have if they hadn't been affirmatively looking and putting a sign in the Student Bar Association office saying they were looking for us. Saying that they were looking for you or for someone like you. What I continue to hear over and over and over um, is our students, they need to see themselves in positions of influence. 
right? And when they don't see folks that might look like them, it's difficult for them to see themselves in positions that might enact change. What are your thoughts about that, Judge? Going back to, I think both Bill and I were to some extent uh, part of affirmative action and got us to where we are. And I'd like to give credit to San Antonio College for me, because I ended up at graduating from the University of Texas. But had I gone from Edgewood High School, 94% Hispanic, poor area, uh, and grew up in, a, in an environment of almost exclusive Latinos, going from that environment to Austin, to a university where minorities were, were not seen on campus, I'm not sure I would have made it. But SAC gave me the perfect transition to go from an all-Latino high school to a, an environment where I mixed more with other races and gradually worked my way up to the University of Texas, where I felt more comfortable in Austin after two years in San Antonio College than I would have uh, had I gone directly. And I don't know that I would have been able to survive. So that was a form of, for me, taking advantage of the environment that I was in to transition into a, a, an environment that I felt comfortable with. So it, it, in a way, it was affirmative action that through SAC, I was able to, to go to the University of Texas. One thing that we, we need to, to talk about, too, is, is that what lies ahead. And I think the court said there are ways to take into account uh, a person's race indirectly uh, if an essay is required. You can write an essay and says how my race affected me being raised in a poor area and how discrimination might have affected me as I grew up. And that essay that takes into account your character, the individual, not just pulled everybody together, but an essay that points out how race has affected you and how you think it might make you a leader or give you character is, is a way that a university can take into account a person's background. Uh, so that's one way of getting around it instead of saying directly. And as Bill pointed out, these schools need to come and recruit. They got to come down here, the, the Harvards, the Yales, Princeton, Stanford, send people down here and go into the Harlandale District, the South Sand District, the, the San Antonio School District, the Edgewood District, and recruit and get some of those students encouraged to go to universities, to those universities. So that's one way of, of getting around the race issue that the court has said you can't take it into account. There are ways that you can still get minorities to your schools. And I think the universities are going to have to think about how we're going to recruit these people. That's the beauty about working at the Alamo Colleges District, right? Our students have an opportunity to come through our doors and receive a higher education that is excellent, right? And what I love about it is that it does not matter who you are or your walk of life. We are here to welcome you with open arms. We're here to walk the journey to success. Whether you decide to attend Harvard or Columbia, just know that you can always, always start at San Antonio College or any of the colleges within our district. That is important to note. For example, uh, just uh, a month ago, I found out that our students, two of them, they ended up in Columbia. Columbia University will be receiving two of our students this coming fall. So what does that tell you? It tells you that opportunity is available. 
is available for any of the students within our district that start with us and they want to go on to a four-year. It is possible. Bill, what are your thoughts about that? I think the presence of the college district and all the campuses here are absolutely critical uh, to the growth of our community. And they do provide tremendous opportunity for the students in San Antonio. And to start here, go on from here, and I guess now you'll have a four-year college degree program here, too. Yes, we do. And uh, it's more cost-effective. I've spent 40 years helping Notre Dame recruit down here. And we've had a lot of students that have gotten into Notre Dame and and said, you know, it's too expensive. I want to stay at SAC or go to UTSA or whatever. And they'll do that. And then they'll go to graduate school somewhere. So it, it is critical to let the students know those opportunities exist so they can seek them. I see. What are your thoughts about the SAT, ACT, GREs, the LSATs, and all those entrance exams? My thoughts personally are that I think there's a significant racial bias in the tests, and I don't think they are necessarily an accurate predictor of your ability to finish college. As long as you use any of those tests as part of the admissions process, you do not have a race-neutral admissions process. Interesting. There is a racial bias there. There is a racial bias in your point of view. Judge? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with, with Bill, and I think this opens the door for universities not to take into account standardized tests mm. because standardized tests eliminate some of the minorities mm-hmm. who haven't had the proper education or preparation for universities. So if the universities look at other ways of evaluating their students or or their applicants other than standardized tests, you're going to get more minorities into your schools. And those minorities can prove that they can make it and they can do it. So doing away with standardized tests might work in many situations. Thank you. Thank you. Bill, what lies ahead? I think the institutions of higher education are going to have to get more creative. It's it's hard to say because they've been very creative in in the efforts. And I think there's been a lot of very good, hearted, honest, sincere attempts to do things right and that benefit the community and this country as a whole. But it does create some challenges on what other kinds of things you're going to have to do. And I look back to, to me, this is like watching the game film of a football game. And you see what are the defenses you're going to face, and you have to adjust your offenses. And the defenses change every year, so you have to adjust your offense. And this is just one more example of that. There's a new defense that the Supreme Court has put up. What offense are you going to come up with to work around that defense? Judge, any last few words? Bill and I are in the same law firm, and and we've sat down and discussed this issue (laughs) because we're both from the poor parts of town. Yes. Not having affluent family, not having uh, educated, college-educated parents, and yet we made it. And if we made it, if Bill made it, if I made it, anyone in San Antonio can make it. All it takes is getting in there and doing it and making an application. Don't be intimidated. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. You can do it. If Bill can make it, if I can make it, anyone else can. So don't let opinions like this or anyone else tell you that you can't go to wherever you want to go. So I would encourage everybody, go out there and go for it. Wonderful. Judge, Bill, thank you so much both. It has been amazing having this chat with both of you. And I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come back uh, some other time and uh, expand upon other issues that we know will be coming up in our nation very, 
very soon. News is always happening all the time. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you. Judge Prado, thank you. Thank you, doctor. This is Front and Center, recorded at the KSYM Studios on the San Antonio College campus. Front and Center is available on Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and airs Monday mornings at 8.30 on KSYM 90.1 FM in San Antonio. More information on Front and Center is online at ksym.org.